0: This is the second presentation for the Dermatological Disorders module, and we're going to start off with erythema multiform. Again, I want to make sure you go back into the textbook and read up on the pathophysiology um, for this disorder, as well as it contrasts it with Steven Johnson syndrome, as well as uh, TENS, which is toxic epidermal necrolysis. And for our erythema multiform, this is an acute immune-mediated mucocutaneous disorder. It has a distinctive characteristic known as the target lesion, and I'll show you some pictures of that here shortly. And usually this is accompanied by an oral genital or ocular mucosal involvement. And there's usually two types of erythema multiform. There's the major type. And this has mucosal involvement. And then there's the minor type, which does not have mucosal involvement. Now, for, for erythema multiforme, uh, some of the causes that we tend to see uh, herpes simplex virus tends to be one of the biggest causes. Um, but we can also see this with mycoplasma pneumonia. And then it can be medication mediated um, for medications such as NSAIDs, anti epileptics sulfonamides, as well as aminopenicillins. And there have been some rare cases where they've seen patients develop this after receiving immunizations, such as the diphtheria tetanus uh, vaccine, uh, hepatitis B, and smallpox. And again, with the pathophysiology, there's a severe immune response, which results in this vascular injury and is caused by the inflammatory cytokines, And this leads to the recruitment of the HSV-specific CD4 um, cells that produce this interferon gamma. And with this, plus the cytokines, lead to cell death and other symptoms. Um, When a drug is induced, it is associated with cytokine TNF-alpha, and this produces epidermal destruction. And the cytokines are also responsible for apoptosis of the keratinocytes within the skin. Your presentation typically is symmetrical, it is self-limited, and these patients, um, their, their lesions spread centripetal, and this usually means uh, moving toward the center. But oftentimes, these patients have their trunk spared. The initial lesion, lesions are dusky red macules, um, also can be described as an erythematous wheel um, that evolve into these target, target-like lesions, And these lesions can be found on the extremities, the palms, and the soles of the feet. Um, Oftentimes, you'll see it in the palms and the soles of the feet first. You can have some mucosal involvement. And if it is, usually the vermilion border of the lips is the most common place that you'll see it. And for these patients, they can develop vesicles or boule, um, but oftentimes it's a very small body surface area, usually less than 2%. If it's greater than 2%, you have a higher suspicion of it being another um, illness such as Steven Johnson or TENS um, or other types of um, skin pathologies. Typically, these patients are asymptomatic, um, but over time, they can develop some itching and burning. The mucosal involvement usually um, is in about 25 to 60% of these patients. And most often it occurs in the oral mucosa. There is no typical prodrome for these patients. Usually they'll have an infectious disease um, that has been going on for some time. And three to seven days later, they will develop these lesions. And it's usually, like I said, it was self-limited. They resolve in about one to two weeks. There is a very small subset subset of patients that can have frequent episodes or chronic episodes. Your differential diagnosis is gonna include urticaria, fixed drug eruptions, Steven Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Now I'm gonna talk a little bit in more detail about Steven Johnson syndrome and TENS, um, just because this often can be mistaken for these two types of illnesses, and I'll talk about some distinctive characteristics that can help you determine between the two. So initially, when you have Steven Johnson, first of all, let's talk about Steven Johnson syndrome and 10. They're essentially the same disorder. The difference being that with Steven Johnson, you usually have a much smaller body surface area that is involved. And that usually includes about 10 to 30%. If it's greater than 30%, then the diagnosis shifts into this toxic epidermal necrolysis. And it could be more problematic as it involves mo- more body surface area because we know that the skin has a lot of functions, such as protecti- protecting from infection. It helps regulate temperature. Um, there's a, um, and it helps with um, retaining your body fluids. And then when you lose that protective layer, you tend to lose a lot of fluids. So we have to be very careful when we're looking at our diagnosis, making sure we're making it appropriately. And we're not confusing this with um, erythema multiforme. And not confusing that with Steven Johnson syndrome or TENS. So initially, these patients will present with um, mucosal, mucosal erosion and an atypical target lesion. They can have a widespread of epidermal um, mucosal membrane necrosis. And they have symptoms prior to the skin reaction or these skin eruptions. Typically, they can have a relatively high fever, sore throat, arthralgias, uh, vomiting, and diarrhea. They also have what is known as a positive Nikolsky sign. And this is where you touch this, the epidermal layer of the skin with your hand. And if you can retract the skin slightly and it starts to slough off, that's a positive Nikolsky sign. Um, and we see this in almost all patients with Steven Johnson's N10s, 93 to 100 um, percent, who have two or more mucosal surfaces involved as well. So that's how you kind of can determine the difference between the two. Again, here's a nice picture of erythema multiforme with the target lesions, um, and they look like little bullseyes, perfect little round targets. Again, with Steven Johnson syndrome, and as you can see here on the screen, you could see how the skin is, is basically sloughing off. This would be a positive Nikolsky sign. This is, a, again, a more severe in a patient that has it um, in a larger... So this is just showing a picture of the hand, but they have a much, much more uh, involvement on their skin. Again, with these patients, you want to obtain a very good history. You're going to want to get cultures of the lesions, both bacterial and viral. Again, because there's such a high suspicion of herpes simplex virus with um, erythema multiform, you're going to want to go ahead and grab that HSV-PCR you're going to also look for some of your um, inflammatory markers too. So checking an ESR, CRP are, are helpful. You can have an elevated white count as well because of the inflammatory process that's going on. And these patients, because of um, the degree of lesions, you're going to want to check electrolytes um, and you may even need to do a skin biopsy. Oftentimes when you involve or consult dermatology um, or even surgery, they're going to want to get a skin biopsy to help. Um, with a diagnosis, or to see if there's any bacterial involvement as well. One thing to note is that patients with recurrent or persistent um, erythema multiforme are at higher risk for malignancies. So this may be something else that the team may want to go ahead and start to evaluate. Your treatment plan is going to include uh, supportive management, and oftentimes, in, you know, in the literature, they'll they'll have some um, topical emollients. Um, antihistamines, NSAIDs, um, and even steroids to help with some of the skin irritation or discomfort that they might be experiencing from the lesions. You definitely want to remove the causative agent. So if this was caused by an HSV infection, you're going to want to treat for it. If there was a medication that was started, you're going to want to stop it, um, especially if there's a medication that's a high suspicion um, for erythema, multiform, or even Steven Johnson syndrome. Your antibiotics um, are not typically recommended unless there is a concern for infection, and then you're going to want to treat, and you want to narrow it down to the most appropriate antibiotic for this patient. For your Steven Johnson and 10, you're going to want to do a a little bit more in-depth workup, so you're going to want to do a blood gas, um, because with Steven Johnson and 10, you may have involvement that you cannot see. So sometimes this can involve the inside of the airway, inside of the GI tract, some of your um, uh, other organ systems. So you want to make sure you're evaluating and supporting the patient appropriately. Um, Your skin biopsies for these patients um, should also be done. and your histology findings, um, there can be full thickness necrosis of the epidermis uh, and detachment from the dermis with T-lymphocyte infiltration in the surrounding vasculature. Um, You may also find um, um, with the boule you may find fluid that's filled in these um, um, uh, in the boule. And you'll, you may want to go ahead and send that off for um, HSV studying as well. Again, you're going to want to check your mycoplasma uh, serologies. You're going to want to check chest x-rays to make sure that we, um, if we need to provide respiratory support or if there are any other issues there that we're addressing those. Um, treatment plan is going to include providing IVIG. Um, plasmapheresis, steroids, um, antibiotics if you have a known infection, airway management. Um, we don't do prophylactic antibiotics in these patients unless we are concerned for infection. Um, the airway management can be very challenging in these patients, specifically if they have a lot of involvement in the face, um, thinking about it, how are you going to secure the ET tube? You may have to uh, apply for specific devices. Uh, I know in the past, many, many years ago, we used to suture the ET tube to the patient's uh, gums to make sure that it didn't move. But nowadays, we have better oral um, securing devices for our ET tubes, so we don't see that as often. Um, we also want to make sure that we provide um, adequate nutrition to these patients, so whether that be through TPN um, or if they can eat, you want to definitely consult your, your nutrition dietitians to make sure that we're giving the appropriate amount of calories to, to allow for good wound healing. And other consults, you know, they're all listed here on the slide, um, but you may need to involve surgery, um, infectious disease, ophthalmology if you have eye involvement, um, all of your different therapy groups such as physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Um, plastics may need to be involved, especially if there's a lot of scar tissue or a lot of wounds that need to be addressed. Um, and then, of course, if you have any other systemic involvement, you may, have, you may be required to involve other um, consulting services. Your disposition with these patients, again, you want to have good family education. You definitely want to make sure to address if there's any body image disturbances. So they may need a psychological evaluation for depression or other psychosocial um, issues. So you want to make sure you address that before discharge, or at least make sure that they're getting into a, a care provider upon discharge. And then of course, you know, if there's any other consultation services that need to follow up for long-term concerns, you want to provide that as well. Moving on to our stings, the most common one that we see are bee and wasp stings. I remember as a kid getting stung by a bee and I thought my life was going to end because it hurts so bad. Um, but these are very easily treated um, and quick. Um, the big concern with these stings is want to make sure that if there is an anaphylactic reaction that we would treat that immediately. So for your bees, wasps, and fire ants, the pathophysiology is relatively similar where they have a chemical component to their venom. Um, that, that's basically injected into the patient's or the victim's skin. Um, this can carry active components, which can be toxic um, to, the, to, the, to the tissue causing histamine release. Um, uh, so you, you'd be very cons- you know, concerned about that. They also contain a variety of antigens that can cause um, IgE-mediated hypersensitivity. And again, this is where your anaphylactic reactions become a, a very large concern. Oftentimes, you know, the child either witnesses it or someone else witnesses the the bee, wasp, or fire ant stinging the child. Um, There's pain at the site. Typically, there's edema, which usually occurs pretty quickly. There can also be erythema. With your fire ants, there can be a pustule that develops, um, and they can be persistent for quite some time, so be aware of that. Um, They can also, for more serious bites, you can have fever, headache, syncope, Um, I've never seen rhabdomyelosis, but it is listed in the book, but I'm I'm assuming that this would be the most severe case. Um, Renal injury as well as seizures. And again, one of the more life-threatening would be that of anaphylactic reaction. Um, Your plan of care is relatively simple. There are no diagnostic studies, so you really have to go by evaluation as well as history. You're gonna wanna remove the stinger um, but you want to remove it carefully. So oftentimes we'll use the edge of a scalpel um, to make sure that we're not squeezing additional um, venom into the from the stinger into the patient. So you want to be very careful with that. You can apply cold compresses. And of course, you know, if you have a histamine reaction, you can give some, some benadryl. Um, oftentimes you can give epinephrine or xantag. But if this patient has a known um, allergy um, or there's concern for an anaphylactic reaction, again, you're going to want to assess their ABCs. Epinephrine is going to be your first choice, um, and usually we give that subcutaneously, but if it's you know significant enough, you may need to give it um, intravenously, and of course, you're going to want to observe these patients closely, um, and they may even require um, an ICU stay um, just for at least the very minimum observation. Next, we have your scorpion bites. Um, the one scorpion that we are concerned about here um, in the States is the bark scorpion, which has a... Uh, various different uh, neurotoxins and these neurotoxins essentially will open up the sodium channels and they basically affect the sympathetic and parasympathetic neurons um, which can lead to cholinergic and adrenergic crises so you're going to be looking for your sludge acronym you know the salivation lacrimation and so forth and then your cholinergic crisis where they become you know dry as a beet no, excuse me, dry as a bone, red as a beet, mad as a hatter, um, those kind of things. So you want to look for those type of symptoms as well. Um, the textbook also talks about grading the, the, how the patient is um, presenting. Um, so if a grade one presentation usually is just pain or paresthesias at the site, if that starts to remove proximally, then it, it increases to a grade two. If they develop any type of skeletal neuromuscular dysfunction or cranial nerve dysfunction, um, that becomes a grade three, and then grade four includes both skeletal and cranial nerve dysfunction. Um, your plan of care is going to be analgesics, um, tetanus prophylaxis if they um, if they if they need it, um, benzodiazepines you can use for um, neuromuscular pain or cr- uh, cramping. Um, we can also give them if they have an aginergic adren- adrenergic um, uh, response you can put them on a beta blocker and one that's quick acting um, would be esmolol and you can put them on esmolol infusion and if they have a cholinergic response you can treat that with atropine. We did discuss this before um, in our previous lectures and again they do have an antivenom but this is really reserved for patients that have a grade 3 or grade 4 reaction Next up are our jellyfish we see this a lot here in Florida because we have plenty of beaches. And these um, these fit, the, the jellyfish essentially um, delivers its venom through its tentacles, um, known as their nematocytes. And what they do is they have like um, uh, hundreds to thousands of these tentacles, um, depending on the species, can deliver the toxins to their patients. And this leads to a paralysis and other CNS effects. Typically, there's like a pain or burning. Many patients complain like their skin is on fire. Um, And then they have the inflammatory mediators from the venom, and they can also develop an an allergic reaction, um, which could be life-threatening as well. Again, their presentation typically is immediate pain. Um, The site of the sting will demonstrate local irritation, redness, erythema, um, and it can extend up through the extremity. They can also have other signs such as headache, nausea, vomiting, fever, abdominal rigidity, arthralgias, respiratory distress, hemolysis, renal failure, coma, or hypotension. Your plan of care is going to, of course, remove the tentacles. You're going to want to um, clean them up, um, soaking or washing the extremity with 3% acetic acid for about 30 minutes. Um, You can also apply baking soda slurry to the site um, for 30 minutes, then shaving the area uh, or scraping with a dull instrument to help remove any of those um, tiny little tentacles that might be, bit, that might be present. Um, again, you're going to want to use, um, sea water, um, or normal saline, um, to help rinse, um, the skin. Again, treat any localized pain. Of course, tetanus prophylaxis, um, should be administered. Um, you can also, again, you're going to look for any type of anaphylactic reaction. You can apply antihistamines or topical steroid creams, um, to help with uh, irritation, itching, or burning. Uh, We do not provide prophylactic antibiotics, and if you have any concerns about the treatment therapy, you can always consult your toxicologist for further recommendations. Last part of this lecture, we're gonna talk a little bit about wounds, and on on the screen here, I've put together um, the different types of wounds. I'm not gonna go into too great a detail because we've talked about this in previous semesters. On how to treat lacerations and abscesses. Um, we did talk previously about puncture wounds from cat and human bites, um, lacerations from dog bites, um, the envenomation, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about pressure ulcers as well. Um, but in your textbook on page 304, table 23-2, there is a nice guideline on dressings. Um, it'll help you determine what type of dressing or what type of wound management you're gonna wanna do for various different wounds that we we see. So please review that and take a look at that. Next, we're gonna talk about pressure ulcers or pressure injuries. And the textbook does a beautiful job defining this. This is damage to the underlying skin and underlying soft tissue over a bony prominence related to a medical or other devices. And we stage these in various stages, stage one through four, then there's also the unstageable and then the, t- the deep tissue injury. And your stage one essentially is just redness to the skin that's non-blanchable. Um, and they can have changes in sensation such as temperature or firmness. Um, you can have stage two where we now have an exposed dermis. The wound bed is typically pink and red. Um, oftentimes it's moist and it, it could even present as a blister initially or present as a blister that's ruptured. Your stage three is going to show adipose tissue um, with the visible ulcer. There can be sloughing and eschar also present. And the stage three is where we can start to see tunneling um, that could be present. And this is where you don't see the depths of the injury other than through inspection or debridement. Your stage four are your full thickness. And this is where you have an exposed fascia, muscle, tendon, ligament, cartilage, or bone. Your unstageable ones are the ones that have um, a full thickness uh, presentation to them, but because there's significant scar tissue, you can't determine how deep it is because you don't have enough accessible um, tissue to look at. And then of course your deep tissue injuries, this can be intact or not intact. These can have multiple color presentations such as you know, red, maroon, purple discoloration or epidermal separation. Your plan of care, so the the textbook does a nice job talking about how to treat your pressure ulcers. We typically don't um, want to put any type of antiseptics on the skin because it can cause further destruction of the tissue. Um, It does recommend using um, a Dakin solution, but you want to use that with caution again. Oftentimes, these wounds need to be debrided so that we can get the old tissue out and allow allow for good granulation of the wound um, so that we can have proper healing for it. You definitely want to consult your wound care team. Almost every institution in the country now has a wound nurse or a wound nurse practitioner or even a surgical team that might specialize in pressure ulcer wounds um, to come in and give you recommendations not only on frequency of, of, of treating, um, but also what type of, of dressings would be appropriate and how to go about making sure that we show improvement of this, this uh, pressure injury. Um, you definitely want to assess for um, infections, so that may mean going ahead and getting cultures of the wound. Um, oftentimes, we can put topical antibiotics to the skin um, to help, but the one antibiotic that we do not recommend for neonates in very small children is sulfa, um, uh, silver sulfadiazine. Um, because of the risk of them absorbing the medication, they can become toxic from it. And then, of course, you know, depending on the extent of the wound, you may um, need a wound vac. And oftentimes the wound vacs are um, assessed and applied by the surgical team. Um, so you may need to consult them to come in if you feel that the wound is deep enough that may require a wound vac um, to apply negative pressure to allow for good wound healing. And then you want to do some good education with the staff and caregivers Making sure that we're positioning these patients and repositioning them every two hours or more frequently. I could tell you that our cardiac population, when they have very poor perfusion, um, they are at extremely high risk of, of pressure injuries. So we may even want to turn them even more frequently, um, depending on what we're doing as far as care. Again, you want to get your dietician involved, apply um, good nutrition to your regimen to make sure you have good wound healing. All right. So this ends the second module. All right, you guys have a good one, and please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions or concerns.